today is Easter Sunday. For some of us, those of us who maybe grew up in a church or go to church regularly now, we know that for us, this is like the most important Sunday of the year. It's like the Christmas of Sundays. It's the Sunday that really every other Sunday is about. It is about Jesus' death, but most importantly, his resurrection and what that means for us. It's the Sunday maybe when you were a kid, if you went to church with your family, you would make sure you were dressed in your nicest clothes. Like every Sunday was nice clothes, but Sunday, Easter Sunday was nicest clothes. Or maybe you still do that now. Maybe even in your home at this moment, you're wearing like your nicest suit. You, you're, you know, wearing that, that wonderful hat that, you know, your mom passed down to you and you love it. Uh, or, or maybe you're actually in your pajamas, but you still know that this Sunday is the most important Sunday. It's the Sunday that every Sunday is about. So for some of us, that's what today is. Now, for others of us, we might have a different perspective. For some of us, maybe it's actually really about egg hunts or chocolate bunnies or those people who dress up in those costumes that make nightmare fuel for you when you're little. You know, for us, it is about the bunny, it is about the chocolate, it is about the stale marshmallows, it's about all those things, and it's just a day, it's a holiday, you get a little extra long weekend, and you have some fun on it. And then there's, for others of us, it's, it's, it's just Sunday. It's a Sunday like every other Sunday. You, you don't care about chocolate, you don't care about Jesus, you know, it's, it's just a Sunday, and you're glad that someone's going to give you a day off of You know, for all of us, we have different ideas of what this Sunday means. And for me, I'm in that first category. Maybe I'm not wearing my nicest suit because actually I only own one suit. And so therefore it is my nicest suit. But for me, it is the Sunday that is to be all Sundays. It is a reflection of what is most important for my beliefs, for my faith. What I choose and understand to believe that changes everything for me. And my hope this morning, whether you're you know, watching online live on a Sunday morning or maybe you're tuning in later on demand, or maybe you're watching with family or friends because you know, you're there for Easter and uh, you know, it's lockdown, so you're kind of stuck there. Whatever your reasons for watching this morning, my hope is not to argue with you, not to try to persuade you with, with like clever arguments, try and tell you why you should believe what I would believe. But really, my hope is that for if you are maybe in that category where, uh, you know, Easter is more about bunnies and stuff like that, you get a better understanding of why this day is really so significant. And maybe if you're in that category where, you know, Easter means nothing to you, you can go, okay, well, maybe it still means nothing to me, but I understand it more and I can see where other people are coming from. My hope today, and maybe for, for most of us, would be that we deeply embrace how Easter changed everything throughout history. But in order to get to that point, in order to get to the place where we can talk about why this matters so much, we've got to go way, way back. That in the big picture of everything that is going on, Easter Sunday represents this pivotal point in history where everything shifted. You know, as we're in this time in our lives where we keep getting told to shift and pivot and adapt, really Easter Sunday was the first real pivot. And it was such a pivot that it just changed everything throughout history. That even if you're someone who does not believe that Jesus died and rose again, it would be hard to deny 
that that belief reshapes civilization for thousands of years and still continues to do so, even if the majority of the people in this world don't believe that it's true. It still has shifted culture, history, even science to some degree, so much so that it would be hard to look at the world we are experiencing today, either for its good or its bad, and not see how that true event of Easter, the first Easter, changed things forever. But in the big picture of things, it starts right at the beginning. It starts, and for us, those of us who believe that Easter is representation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, for those of us who maybe are even from a Jewish background, who have this understanding of the creation story, or from another monotheistic religion that maybe have a different kind of understanding of that, for all of us, the story goes back into the beginning. Even if we don't believe that that's how creation exactly happened, which I will be one of those people who say that I don't really believe that, but I believe it points to what happened that started everything off. So in Genesis 2 and 3, we're faced with the story of Adam and Eve. And for those of you who were watching the series early on, a few weeks ago, you know that we talked about this. We talked about how Adam and Eve were in this place called the Garden of Eden. And the garden was perfect. Everything was perfect. In fact, like the people had nothing to worry about. Everything was good. God gave them a simple instruction to care for all that goodness and don't eat from one tree. So what do they do? Well, they seem to stop caring for all that goodness and eat from that one tree. Eve is tempted by a serpent while her husband Adam is there, and it messes everything up. It's the moment where sin enters the picture. And that word sin is so very important. See, in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, for those of us who are Christians, and in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus and the church and what it all means to come together, the word that gets used for sin, both in Hebrew and in Greek, is a word that means to miss the mark. So for Adam and Eve, when sin enters the picture, they miss the mark. For a lot of us, when we talk about sin, we talk about the idea of you did something bad. You know, you stole, you lie, you cheated. Uh, and if you're really, really bad, you know, you murdered or something like that. And while sin is kind of like a moral code, like there's, you know, there's rights and there's wrongs and some of us do wrong and that's sin. But it's more than that. It's not just about our morality. It's about our reality. In Genesis 2 and 3, the picture that gets painted is that sin enters the world and everything misses the mark. Creation is in pain. There is suffering. There is sorrow. We're not where we're supposed to be anymore. So in Genesis 2 and 3, sin enters the picture and people miss the mark. What is the mark they're missing? Is it simply they're just doing things they shouldn't do? Or is there something more? I would say there's something deeply more. The mark that people miss is they stop being people the way they were always intended to be. They miss the mark on being fully human. When Adam and Eve choose to follow the serpent's guidance, to ignore God, to act on their own, yes, there is an action, but what really ends up happening is they stop being what they were always meant to be. So when Jesus says in John's gospel that he came to give us life in all of its fullness, 
He's giving us a picture of what it could be like if we reimagine our lives as fully human, the way God always intended it, the way God desired for it when he created the world and he made us in a relationship with him. But we made choices that missed the mark. And so history has been affected by that initial missing the mark forever. In the big picture, it started with that, is that, you know, everything was good, people missed the mark, everything wasn't good anymore. But God steps in and he does something called a covenant with us. He says, I have a promise for you, and it is a promise for good, that you will be blessed and you will be a blessing. And that when we are in that right relationship with God, even though the missing, the mark, the sin is real, we are stepping more and more into what we were always meant to be. And even though God has made this promise with us, he says that I'm with you, that I have good for you, that you will be good for others because you're with me, we still made choices to walk away from that. It's like we never learned in the first place that when we don't listen to God, things don't go as good as we want. We think that they'll go great because we're like, hey, this is enjoyable. I'll have fun with this. Or, you know, I'm tired of being told what to do, so I just won't listen to God. But in truth, when we don't listen to God, things fall apart. We miss the mark. And as enjoyable as it might be in a moment, the long-term effects could be damaging forever. So God makes these covenants with us. He makes these promises with his people and says, hey, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And this is going to be good if we keep that relationship going. But we don't. When we seem to be waiting too long for God, like God's too slow, you're not getting the answers we want, we start to worship other things. In the Old Testament, they were called idols. In the New Testament, too. You know, people long ago would have statues of bronze, of wood, of gold that they would worship and say, like, this is my new God. It's going to answer what I want. Because God's taking too long. Today, we do the same thing. And idols become our jobs, our money, our education. Even our loved ones can become idols where we think, I'm not getting what I want from God. I'll get it somewhere else. And when we break that agreement with God, that promised relationship, things go downhill again. And so then God steps in again and says, hey, come back to me. Come back to me. All you got to do is come back to me. You know, I know you've messed up. I know you've made mistakes. And I know it's not really going as good as you want. And so in the Old Testament, he sent people named judges. And then he sent prophets. And there were kings. And there were people who would say, come back to God, even when you're doing wrong. Come back to God, and it will improve. You don't have to always miss the mark. You could be fully alive. And so that happened. And then it would go good for a while, and then things would spiral out of control again. People wouldn't miss the mark, and they would be disconnected. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? I am bringing in a new way to be human. The kingdom of God is present and is here. And then Jesus goes and dies. So his followers would probably be like, well, what's this all about? You know, you said you were going to fix all these things. You said, you know, we were missing the mark and you're going to bring us back and everything would be better. And then you go and die on a cross, no less. A cross, which is kind of like the worst way to die in that first century world. It was reserved for like the worst types of people. It was reserved for people who, you know, wanted to be made an example of and that people would look at them and be like, wow, they are horrible because they died on a cross. It was a curse. And so his earliest followers who thought everything was going to get better because of Jesus, 
kind of scattered and they go, well, what's this all about? This is not what I signed up for. And they're gone. They're off. But it comes to the point where that Friday, that death, didn't last. And Jesus rises again. In John's gospel, there's this interesting moment in John where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb where Jesus has been laid. And like most people, like maybe you visited loved ones after they've died and you've gone to funeral services or you've gone to uh, visit their grave sites, you don't expect to find anything. In fact, you expect everything to be as you left it. If you go to a grave, you don't expect someone to have dug it up. If you open a coffin, you expect there to be a dead body, as gross as that sounds. So Mary goes expecting Jesus to be dead, lying on somewhat of a, like a, a rock-faced table where she would anoint the body because that was a common thing to do so that the body would be preserved a little bit longer so people could pay their respects and mourn. And it was a very common thing to have lots of people coming to mourn and cry. And so she would be going there expecting to find this and, and you know, just to pray and maybe just to reflect and, and to feel the deep sorrow she probably experienced of being a follower of Jesus who is now wondering what's next. But when she goes, the body's not there. And so the body's not there, and she is upset. Now, you know, when you read, you know, black letters on white pages, it's hard to know really the emotions behind it. But if you've ever been with someone who lost someone they deeply loved, you know that those emotions are huge. You know, they are hurting like crazy. And to have lost someone through death, and then to have lost the body, I could only imagine that she is weeping and wailing and angry in her sadness. And as she's expressing these emotions, someone comes by and says, why are you upset? And she goes, they took my Lord. They took my Lord. And then the someone asks again, well, why, why are you upset? And she's a little bit like, why are you asking this? I just explained, like, don't you see what's happened here? Jesus died on a cross, which was horrible to begin with. And then I came to pay my respects. I came to anoint him with oils and herbs and all these things so that I could just show how much I loved him even in death. And he's not there anymore. Somebody took him. And it says that in John 20, 15, she's kind of annoyed because she thinks he's the gardener. She explains, like, he took him. So she thinks the gardener shows up to this tomb and says, well, what happened here? What's the big deal? The gardener. You go way back into the beginning. The people are in a garden, this place of perfection, the place that God has for us that says it's all good, everything. And all you got to do is stay in this right relationship with me. And you got to care for what I made and what I love. And you got to just eat from everything except for this one tree. And since then, since people ate from that one tree, you've been trying to get back to the garden. And in this moment of sorrow, of weeping, of anger and confusion as to what is really going on, Mary thinks a gardener showed up. A gardener. And the presumable gardener says, Mary, and she realizes it's Jesus. 
You know, this story in, in all of the Gospels that record what happens after Jesus died and that he rose again, all of them record that there are women or a woman at the tomb who encountered Jesus or an angel. To me, this is incredible evidence that this is believable. Not because, you know, there's a witness account in the Bible, but because of who is witnessing it, women. In a world where women were not always looked upon as favorably as men, where their kind of testimonies and like what they would say would not be always considered as valid as men, for 2,000 years, people have accepted the testimony of women saying Jesus rose from the dead. If this wasn't true, people would not have chosen women in this story. They would have added men in the story to have witnessed this event because women wouldn't be reliable. And so to me, this emphasizes the possibility, which I believe is completely 100%, that this happened. Because no one in their right mind in the first century who was trying to record history, who was trying to show people what happened or start a religious movement, would use women in this role. But the Gospels do. Jesus did. And so for that first audience that would hear this, that would read this, that would be exposed to this, not just the first audience who experienced the actual dying and rising of Jesus, but those next generation that would hear it, they would probably go, you're using women in this story? Well, that's got to be true. Nobody would keep this in history if it wasn't. It wouldn't have lasted this long. And so Mary thinks the gardener is there. As everybody has been trying to get back to the garden, all of a sudden the gardener shows up and says, hey, what was dead is now alive. I'm not dead. And Jesus tells him to go and tell everyone. And this whole movement starts with that. That these people who were wondering what was going on, like they didn't understand it. They couldn't understand how the person they followed, who was going to lead this rebellion against the empire, who was going to lead them to hope, to salvation, died in the worst way possible. And so they scatter and they go about their business. They go back to their jobs. They People like Peter say, I, I, didn't, I didn't know him. I wasn't there. He tries to deny it altogether because they don't want to be associated with someone who died on a cross. Mary goes, thinks the gardener sees her, realizes Jesus when he says her name and is told to tell everybody, and she does. And so, you know, the band gets back together. The followers start to come together and go, what is this all about? And Jesus appears to them and he encounters them. And some have doubts like Thomas. Some of us might have read where Thomas says, hey, I'm not going to believe it unless I touch his hands and his side. Like until I see those wounds that, you know, this person died on a cross, I'm not going to believe he rose again. And some of us are like Thomas. We're like, hey, I... I, I like this story. I like this idea, but I don't, I don't know if I can believe it because, you know, it just seems so impossible. And I got to tell you, it does seem so impossible. Like it makes no sense at all. Dead things don't come to life. When you are making dinner 
you know, tonight. Maybe you've, you've got a ham. You're not going to expect when you put that ham in the oven, you open the oven again, there's a pig in there. You don't expect that. Dead things don't come to life. But in this moment, this improbability, this thing that doesn't make sense at all happens. How do we know that? Well, it's recorded in four different accounts, but it's also recorded by other people. And so Paul will say, you know, there, you know, 500 people witness this. And you would think that with so many people witnessing these things, that there would be a great opportunity to squash them if they weren't true. Yet somehow the story keeps going. And in a tradition where people would pass the stories on with spoken word before they would write them down, the tradition keeps going and everyone seems to be aware of it for centuries, millennia, to say, wow, this happened. Why do we know this? Well, you know, we've got these four accounts of it. And these four accounts all say that these women saw this. And if, you know, these women saw it, we would think, why would they put them in the account? Because nobody trusts women. But they did. Jesus somehow, even in his death and resurrection, is elevating women to a higher status than what they were used to and saying their testimony is true. And then he appears to men, and those men say, hey, we witnessed this, the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus has died, he has risen, he's encountered his followers, and he sends his followers out saying, you are going to go make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And then they go out, and in Jerusalem, Peter and everyone is in this room, similar to when they were sharing a meal in a room together. And Jesus said, I'm going to die. And they didn't get it. And as they're sharing in this room, kind of wondering, hey, what's next? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. God's present presence re-enters the room. As Jesus was present physically with them, the Spirit is with them spiritually and present in the same way with them in those moments. The Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking these languages that other people from different backgrounds understand and they never learned them in the first place. And then the people in the crowd are like amazed by it or they go, wow, these guys are drunk. And Peter gets up, Peter who had been ashamed of Jesus, who rejected Jesus, who Jesus reinstated said, hey, feed my lambs, care for people. He gets up and he's kind of the leader of the group because he's the oldest and he's the one that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my church upon you upon your testimony. And he gets up and he says, we're not drunk. This is what happened. And it recounts to them the big picture, what happened in the Old Testament, what they were waiting for, and that Jesus was the one they were waiting for. And that if they knew this to be true, they needed to repent. They needed to turn around. They had been missing the mark for so long. They forgot what it really meant to be fully human. And if they repent, they move away from missing that mark and they start to hit that bullseye and they start to be fully alive the way they were always intended to be in the garden. They start to move back into the garden because someone who looked like a gardener to someone else died and rose again. That Jesus died for the forgiveness of their sins as an atoning, meaning in the place of sacrifice for us to make right. So Jesus is in the place where maybe some of us probably belong, where we should be paying for what we've done wrong, the choices we've made. Jesus steps in, does that for us. And so Peter tells us to the crowd, and then history starts to shift in the big picture of everything, because everything starts to come back to what do we do with the person Mary thought was a gardener? And if Jesus died and rose again, it changes everything for the people who encounter it. And we read through the book of Acts in history. And even later on, we read through the history of the world, how the church is expanding and growing and growing because people are encountering 
what Easter is all about and see how it changes everything. And one of those who had those encounters was Paul, a man who would persecute people who believed that Jesus died and rose again. He would have it as his mission to do whatever he could to harm them, to get rid of them, to eradicate them. But he encounters Jesus while he's on the road to actually do that persecuting. And his life changes forever. And he comes to realize that that person who Mary thought was a gardener, the one who died and rose again, was inviting us to go back to the garden because we had been missing the mark on what it means to be human all along. And he made it his mission no longer to stop those people from sharing that message, but to share it. And he started planning churches and teaching and guiding people to understand why it is so significant that Easter is real. And we know this through the history of the book of Acts, the recording of those stories there. Luke was with him and he did it. But we also know it through the letters he wrote to these churches, some that he started, some that he didn't start, where he wanted to help them understand why Easter changes everything. Why in the big picture, it is the moment of change from things aren't right, and no matter what we do, we're not going to make them right, to God made it right. And the story goes on. And so in the book of Romans, he writes this letter to this church in Rome that he hadn't even been to himself. And he explains to them the big picture. He explains how because of Adam's sin, we're in a mess. We've missed the mark. We're not as fully human as we should have been. We've missed the idea of what it means to be fully alive. And we've replaced it with something that is fake, but it seems to give us momentary pleasure. So we embrace it. But he says there's something better that God has for us. And he writes this in chapter 5. He says, therefore, you know, because he said all these things about, you know, what has happened and what is wrong and, and what God is doing. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, meaning justice has been served. So when someone does something wrong, we want justice, right? We want someone to pay for what was done wrong. So Paul says, since we've been justified, so whatever wrong, whatever missing the mark has happened, by faith, it's made right. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the one who is to judge for justice, we are made at peace with because of the one who Mary thought was a gardener, but was really her Lord who had risen from the dead through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, meaning we express, we, we proclaim, we want to tell everybody we are excited about it. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We are hopeful. We have an idea that whatever has been wrong can be better in God's glory, Jesus. In Jesus, things can be made right. We've been justified. We step into grace, meaning we are given something we fully don't deserve, but it is a gift, salvation, forgiveness of sins, hope, and that no other idol or God or family member or job or any of that can promise that to us. It might give us temporary relief from the suffering we experience, but it doesn't fix the problem. Jesus fixed the problem. Through the cross, he made us right with God. Not only so, but 
We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. So when we go through hard times, we know that we can persevere. We can be resilient. Perseverance can develop our character and character can produce hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has been given to us. So Paul makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is with us because Jesus has died and risen again. It changes history forever. And that when we were once guilty, we're no longer guilty. We are justified. We are stepping into the grace God has for us. And because we step into that grace, even in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our suffering, we can persevere. We know there's something better. Friday happened, but Sunday was coming. There was hope to be embraced. If you are in a moment in your life where everything seems wrong, and I know a lot of us feel it right now. We feel it because, you know, if you're in Ontario, you're in shutdown. You're not in lockdown. You're in shutdown. You're thinking, it's been a year. I want to see my grandkids. I want to be in church. I want to go to the store and not have to worry about what I touch or who I look at or all these things. And we're worried about our businesses. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about all these things. We are in moments of suffering because we are in Fridays in our life where it looks like everything is dark and nothing good can happen. And in the midst of those Fridays, we have to remember in that suffering, we can persevere because Sunday will come. There will be a moment where hope is realized, where we recognize that what Jesus has done for us gives us an opportunity for our future that we could have never done on our own. And even in the midst of this struggle, even in the midst of these moments where we think everything is lost, everything is horrible, we shouldn't give up hope because hope Hope will not put us to shame. It won't disappoint us because God has something so much better than we could ever imagine. In the midst of the reality that we have missed the mark, we forgot what it means to be truly human. We forgot to be in that relationship with God. We've been missing the mark. We've been doing other things, trying to get what we want in the moments to fill that void. God says, I'm making a way for you. And I am letting you step into my grace through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And you no longer miss the mark. You can be fully alive. Hope will not put you to shame. It will not disappoint you. There is something so much better than what we experience right now. And that is found in Jesus. And when we step into that, we might know it's Friday. But we persevere. We build character. Because the hope of Sunday will come. There will be a day where we won't be in shutdown or lockdown or gray zone or red zone or curfew or whatever you're going through right now. There will be a day where we'll see our loved ones again. There will be a day where our own sorrow, our own expressions of pain and anger and frustration will be relieved. But it is only, only through Jesus that we can fully understand that. We might get momentary relief from things like drugs or alcohol or sex or even entertainment, or our jobs, or our families. We might think not all bad, some are good. We might bring those into our lives and say, well, this will fill that void, that'll fix the problem. They become the idols that have led us away because we keep missing the mark, and it doesn't fulfill us. It doesn't fix the problem. Blaise Pascal wrote that we all have this God-shaped vacuum inside of us, that we are trying to consume things to fill that hole that only God will do. And he did it in Jesus. That no longer do we have to miss the mark, but we could be fully human in the hope, in the faith that he provides. Because it is death 
and most importantly, his resurrection. Because there is no meaning to Friday if Sunday didn't happen. And in your lives, whether you're on a Friday or maybe you're on a Saturday, you think you're closer to Sunday, Sunday will come. Hope will not put you to shame. And Paul's going to continue, and this is important. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, meaning we couldn't have done anything, we couldn't fix the problem, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Like, most people won't give their lives for other people, he's saying. But in this moment, Christ died for us. He says, but God demonstrated, God showed, God showed up in the moment. He demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still missing the mark, while we still had forgotten what it means to be human, and we made decisions that moved away from that initial invitation from God to love and care for all of his creation. And instead, we made selfish choices at times. Instead, we made choices that hurt other people because we were affected by sin. Because sin was running rampant. It was an existing force in this world where everything is missing the mark. Nothing is what it's supposed to be. But Jesus steps into the picture. God in the flesh comes in and says, hey, it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like this. And while we're still missing the mark, while we are still sinners, God makes the decision to say, I'm going to make it right. Because only I can. And Jesus dies and rises again. He defeats death. He breaks the power that sin had, that we don't have to keep missing the mark, that we could become fully alive, what we've always been meant to be. And he gives us that promise through justification, making us right with God, paying the penalty for the reality that we do things We do things that miss the mark. We sin. We are not perfect. We make decisions. We just affect other people. We are selfish. We do all this stuff that is not in the way God intended. And knowing that we couldn't fix it on our own, he did. He did it on the cross. He did it in the most unlikely way. Not in going, hey, you've got to follow more rules. You've got to follow more rules. Like, it seems like God tried that. He gave us instructions saying, don't do these things and you'll be, you'll be all right. And we didn't follow him because When we have rules, we go, well, what would happen if I really broke it? Maybe that's what happened to Adam and Eve. Maybe they were like, well, you know, like he said not to. And so I guess we couldn't. But maybe if we did, we'd really see what would happen. Well, they saw what happened and everything throughout history is messed up. But Jesus steps in and wants to make it right. Easter matters because it is the moment in history in the big picture of everything. Not just the big picture of the Bible, but the big picture of history where everything changed. And history from that point shifted and sometimes got better, a lot of times got worse. But when it was aligned with what Jesus taught, it got so much better. When people embraced the cross and the empty tomb as the kingdom that is present, the world changed for the better. We started to get back to the garden. But the problem is we keep missing the mark. Even though Jesus has made an opportunity for us, even though Jesus has has done this so we don't have to keep following the same patterns, many of us do because it's easy. 
because it's, you know, it's, it's not hard. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. There are a lot of hard things to do in life that are right, and many of us choose not to because it's so much easier not to. It's easier to be lazy. It's easier not to care. It's easier to just do what you want in a moment. But that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not why Jesus died and rose again. He died and rose again for your life in its fullness. And to avoid the problems and to try and make more problems, even unintentionally, does not mean life in the fullness. Truth is, Jesus has given us an opportunity that even though the story started off not so good where we were in sin, while we were still sinners, while we were missing the mark, while we've made decisions, while we've just done things we regret, we wish we didn't do, whether it's relationships or whether it's things that were illegal or even whether things that were probably good but not the best. We have missed the mark. We've missed what he's had for us all along. And he's made a way for us to go, okay, we missed the mark, but we can start again. And when you start again, the language that gets used is you are a new creation. You have a blank slate. You are forgiven. You can move forward and experience life in all of its fullness. The hard thing to realize, hard thing to realize is that, yeah, sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we've messed up. Sometimes we've hurt people. Sometimes we've hurt ourselves. Sometimes we wish we didn't, but we did. And we have regrets. We have anger. Sadness. And the hard thing to realize is you cannot go back and erase them. You can't go back and fix the wrongs you've done. You can't, you know, stop yourself as a five-year-old from telling your mom you hate them. You can't go back 20 years and try to fix your marriage 20 years ago in the moment where you decided to look at porn. You know, you can't go back and go, okay, well, you know, that relationship I had where I went a little too far sexually, I can't go back and fix that. We can't go back, but in Jesus, we can begin again. All of us have done things in our lives that, you know, when we're honest, we wish we didn't. Because the reality is that sin is real. And sin has led us in a way to miss the mark, to not be who God really made us to be. And we can't go back but we can step in to the moment and recognize that the death and resurrection of Jesus has given us an opportunity to experience life in his fullness, forgiveness of sins, to be justified, to be made right with God, and we can start again. You can't change the beginning of your story, but you can change the end in Jesus. God, you have given us a great gift on Easter, a gift of you stepping into human history of, of a reality where we have missed the mark, where we have not done what we were supposed to be doing, where we have lived lives that don't reflect the goodness that you made in us. And as a result, we've hurt ourselves. We've hurt others. We've hurt your good creation. And it suffers. We suffer. But in Jesus, in you, in you stepping into history thousands of years ago to live like us, to experience life and present us with a new way of being human, to be new creations, to be born again. You stepped in and you died for us when maybe we deserved it. 
know when I know we deserve. But you rose again to show that life can begin again. And for many of us, we might be wondering in different parts of our lives, some of us are a little bit older, some of us are younger, but most of us can say, hey, I've made mistakes. And we have shame, we have regret, we have sorrow. And you are saying to us, God, that we don't have to embrace that shame, that sorrow. We can begin again in you. We can't change the beginning. But in you, Jesus, our ending can change forever. I pray this morning that for those of us who maybe we're watching with family or we're streaming online on our own, and maybe we're at a place where we don't even know what we believe about Easter, not the bunnies, but about you that we can open our hearts and our minds to the possibility that Easter is the moment where history could change for all of us. To the possibility that you love us so much that even when we didn't love you, you expressed that love through the cross. For those of us who have already embraced that, God, encourage us, but also remind us to step out of our past and step into your future that we don't have to hold on to sin and shame, that we have missed the mark, but you've given us a way to be fully human. Help us to embrace that today. Help this Easter be that moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that this Easter can be that moment where everything changes in the big picture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.